0: Mentors, I'm Julie. And I'm Jimmy. And we believe authentic, connected relationships are the key to growing to your potential. Today, we are joined by rock star academic, Dr. Emily Hoyler-O'Hare, who shares how to make beautiful music, regardless of tone, through mentoring relationships.
1: We break down music theory, musical history, and even touch on artists such as the acclaimed Husker Du, or Chris Ledoux, and likely most importantly, the noteworthy and distinguished Ornette Coleman. Emily is an old college friend, and it was really special to have her share her story of how mentors have marked a trail and given her lookouts through her journey in academia and music. Here we go.
0: Emily Hoyler O'Hare. We are so happy to have you here on Augmenters.
2: Welcome. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Julie and Jimmy. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Okay. I have to start with the very first most important burning question. Emily, Jimmy
2: in college, give me three words. I'm dying <laughs> to hear. Um, affable, um, hilarious, and fun. That's very kind. Because cause I
1: would guess that, uh, you know, Keith would be a lot more fun, uh, but uh, <laughs> I'll take fun compared to Keith. That sounds good.
0: <laughs> okay, listeners, write in. Do you think Jimmy fits any of these three adjectives? <laughs> I would agree with that. Hasn't changed. Hasn't changed at all. Well, we are so happy to have you on. I'm so excited to hear a little bit more about your background. Of course, if you want to throw in any more additional Jimmy in college, maybe Jimmy gave you some great advice, mentoring advice somewhere along the way. I
1: <laughs> I doubt it.
0: <laughs> the answer is no. Emily, tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Well, I, I'm Emily Hoyler O'Hare. I am currently an associate professor adjunct at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. So I teach music history primarily to art students. Music, writing, and history, I should say, all three. And my background is mostly in academia. Um, I did my PhD at Northwestern in Evanston, Illinois. And Shout
0: out, shout out Midwest, shout That's out Chicago. Right.
2: That's right. A little cold this time of year, but a lovely, <laughs> lovely spot. Absolutely. And before that, I was at Tufts University with Jimmy for both my undergraduate and master's degrees. I did music and English as an undergrad, really with the um, idea that I was going to get into music journalism. That was sort of my early interest that I wanted to write program notes and review concerts and do liner notes for, you know, albums and things like that. And when I graduated, I kind of felt, oh, I could use a little bit more of, of this schooling, I would really love to stay around. Um, so I entered the musicology program, the master's program at Tufts University. And In that process, where I thought I was getting more musicology background to get into music journalism, I really fell for academia and got really into the research and found myself applying for PhD programs. It was an interesting kind of moment in my career. I applied also for a music journalism additional program, a master's program, and found myself accepted to both Northwestern, which was my top choice, and to this great Syracuse um, journalism program. One year, path on one, a very long five-plus-year path. On the other, but I I don't know if it would have been harder. But um, ultimately, took the more challenging, at least longer path of going down Mm. um, the PhD route. And I had mentors at Tufts who, fortunately, were extremely clear with me about the rigors and pitfalls of academia. That this wasn't just going to be a beeline to a tenure track job. That it wasn't all rosy and you know, you know, tweed um, throughout the whole process. It was going (laughs) to and. and
1: Tweed is a reoccurring theme on this show, actually.
2: I can imagine, and
0: you know, yeah, compared to music journalism, not so hot on tweed either. Yeah,
2: no, I think that's a little bit more sleek. Um, But I had all this, you know, I, I had a first semester professor who was a professor of music history at Tufts, and I just, as a freshman, looked at her and thought, wow, like I would love to have this job. She talks about music, she does all this stuff. I was really, really. Fascinated with all of it. But fortunately, she and others really talked to me about, you know, this is gonna be challenging. This is gonna be not the easiest road that you'll take. And if you're prepared for all the ups and downs and you're committed to doing it, and you're committed to looking beyond just the standard tenure track model that a lot of people think about when it comes to becoming a professor, go for it and we'll support you. And so I really felt I felt good that I didn't, you know, when I really got into it and realized some of those challenges, I didn't feel like I had been tricked into path, And that was- Because you got
0: the mentor, you know, or at least these people kind of gave you the real deal, the real scoop.
2: Yes. I mean, Jane Bernstein at Tufts, she told me, you know, this is a hard road when I asked her to write letters of recommendation. She said, are you really prepared? You know, it's not going to be, you may not end up in the kind of seated professorship that I have or something like that. Joe Honor at Tufts as well. He was he really sat with me and talked to me about what other alternatives might look like with a PhD if if academia didn't work out for me. Could I translate that into something else? Could I go into arts administration, into development, into other forms of music making or, or sort of public music making that might benefit from my degree? And he also advised me to really look at not only the content that I was getting out of my education, but the skills that I was building to acquire that content and I think that's something that's really stuck with me that it wasn't about remembering you know the 15th century franco-burgundian composers it was about all the all the particular skills that I had to put together to access that material to process it and that was ultimately what my education was for and so that was really that was really helpful and they continued I mean and they continue now to stay in touch with me and I see them at American musicological society meetings and sometimes reach out for advice on you know, a chapter or something I'm working on, but they were really, really instrumental in helping me understand and be realistic about what a path in musicology doctorate would look like.
1: That's amazing feedback and looking around corners when you're still before your PhD program to say, hey, if this doesn't come to fruition as like your dream, like that's such a great reality check about, but hey, you can still have some really awesome careers out there. You know, how'd that conversation even start?
2: It was actually once I had already decided to go, it was at a graduation party. (laughs) You know, he had already, we had had other conversations, but when he really sat down with me, it was at a graduation party at a a colleague's house at the end of our master's program that he attended where we just were sort of sitting on a couch. And he, you know, he talked to me about like, so you're going to do this thing? Like, what else? What else do you think might happen? You know, if it doesn't just go in that path that we're led to believe it might go in, getting tenure, getting those professorships. And I kind of was at a loss and, you know, didn't really know. So I started thinking about it and, and he prompted some ideas, reflecting back to me some of the skills he saw in me. Both of these professors, you know, I worked with them not only as they were my thesis advisors and they were also obviously my professors, but I'd also worked with them as assistants. I was assistant to Jane Bernstein when she was president of American Musicological Society. And I was assistant to Joe Honor when he was the editor of a volume, The Cambridge Companion to Arnold Schoenberg, where he was in both situations, they were really leading whole groups of scholars, you know, Really, all over the place, mm-hmm. who they needed to rally and get materials from, and really who were working for them in an all volunteer basis. And so that was a really great opportunity to sort of see how they led their peers and how they asked me to sort of step in as their liaisons for communicating with their peers. And that I really, I, it really helped me see sort of the other service side of academia, where often volunteer work on boards and other things is part of it. Writing and publishing for little or no money is a big part of it. So seeing those sides of it and corresponding with some of the people that I recognized just as authors of articles that I had read and seeing that side of them was a really, really helpful step. And it it helped me see sort of a more varied side to just the the classroom role of the professor.
1: I'm just kind of picturing you at a graduation party with Joe Honor. And that's that's really his name. That's like an amazing name, Mr. Honor. (laughs) That's crazy.
0: Mentors have the coolest names. They all do.
1: Every one of them. They all sound like superheroes. (laughs) So a prof honor was there and you're on this couch have a glass of wine and someone's telling you, Hey, here are all the things that could likely go bad after your next five years that you've already committed to. Like, how did that feel that somebody was sharing with you? Wonderful context, but at the same time, wasn't necessarily validating your dreams.
2: It, it certainly. I remember feeling a little um, passingly panicked. Not that he was <laughs> he was telling me passingly little, panicked. I love that. Where he was, you know, here I was celebrating this this milestone. I'm off to this big, important next step in my career, and he didn't just spoon feed it to me. He kind of, as he is wont to do in the classroom as well, and I model my teaching very much on both of them. But he. He asked me very pointed questions about, well, so imagine you don't get that tenure track job, or you're in this position, or imagine you have a difficulty with a professor or personality clash, or just other things that sort of you don't really prepare for. Like, what are you going to do there? Or, you know, and when I found myself a little bit at a loss, he didn't judge it. He didn't, he let me sort of sit with that a little bit. And then I found myself a year later back, you know, meeting up with him at the American musicological society, you know, having coffee and being ready and excited to try to tell him how I was navigating some of those things and other things. Mm -hmm. Another key key connection to this was once I got to Northwestern, a class I took that really changed a lot of my perspective was by Bernie Dabrowski, who was professor, I don't know if he was emeritus at the time, but he was the former dean of the Beenan School of Music, an absolutely incredible man. And he taught this class called Music and the Academy. And it was really a class that was kind of meta in its approach in that it was like, here we are in the Academy doing music. What is this all about? How is this all put together? What are the powers and forces and money issues and all the things that contribute to this creation of an academic space for music? And so he taught mm. us a lot about the structures of dean and director positions and how people really get hired into these positions and who's paying for what and what money is, you know, passing hands here and how tuition is meted out to adjuncts versus full professors and like in their salaries. And he, in every class, he would have a, he would have a special guest. Some One time he brought in the president of the university to talk to us. He would bring in other deans of schools of music. He would bring in, you know, people who worked for arts administration organizations or nonprofits associated with music and who all had some experience with academic music. And that was like a really important hand on experience to see in a very formalized sense where we were it was the first time actually that I had to record myself and listen to myself he this is one of our projects we had to talk about basically imitate a job interview and hear ourselves which was always uncomfortable for everyone but in a very important lesson
1: Julie and I feel that way yeah
2: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) we're about to say the same thing I'm recording myself currently you know, six to eight hours a week in lecture. And so, yeah, it's amazing when there's a proliferation of just your own voice.
0: Well, and I love I love this transparency like that. Okay. First of all, I do want to go back for Emily. One thing that Jimmy definitely knows about me, and he also has to although he doesn't admit it as much, is a definite chip on our shoulders. So I am definitely imagining back to Professor Honor sitting on the couch with you, telling you all the reasons why it's not going to work. And you being like, actually it is. And I'm going to see you in a year. And I'm to tell you how I figured it out. And by the way, I'm also going to be teaching at the top university. So I appreciate that because there is sometimes a little bit of that reverse mentoring when people, you know, depending upon how you react, some people are like, oh my God, they're absolutely right. But some people are like, you know, F you bring it on. Except, I think we yeah. kind of get to the uh, the second level of that. So I love that moment that you're like, okay. But then I also, it's so cool about this class and the transparency. And I don't think Jimmy, we've even like talked a lot about that. Is that a mentor or potentially a little bit like a sponsor within an organization, that that's really one thing I think that they can bring, which is like, here's what's actually going on around here. Like, here's where the money comes in. Here's how you get to this position. And like, that is really cool. That's a big idea.
2: It was a great class and it was also wonderful because it was one of the only classes that had PhD students from all three of our concentration areas in the School of hmm. Music. You know, there's an area of the School of Music that's the conservatory area. That's, you know, all the people who are getting doctoral degrees in music specifically, meaning piano, voice, you know, the actual instruments, conducting, composing. Those are the DM students, Doctors of Music. And then there's the PhD students. They're getting the Doctors of Philosophy and they're, they're in music studies. And then the PhDs are the Doctors of Philosophy with music studies concentrations. And the PhDs were musicologists like myself, who really studied the history and kind of cultural context of music making. They are music cognition uh, students who studied really connections between music and like neuroscience and things like that. And then the music education people who were oftentimes coming from positions working in high school, music teaching and other things like that, where they wanted to kind of enhance their careers, or they would, you know, they would bring their music education and pedagogy into it. So those were our three sort of areas of music studies. So that class had all three areas represented, including some DMs. I think we had a composer in there as well. People who wanted to really understand how the academy works, and it was just a really eye-opening class. <laughs> Incredible to understand. Really, I mean, in many ways, the the true corporate structure of a university. There's a lot of romanticization about the way that universities work, and just these sort of everybody's here to learn and read and discuss and converse. But it's a you know it's a really it's a corporate. Corporate machine. It's working for, you know, for a lot of varied interests, and it has a lot of careers and people to support, and it's got to work accordingly. And so to get a real sense of that and to really challenge and interrogate the idea of, you know, okay, we understand why we have to support chemists and biologists and STEM and uh, you know other areas that are going to have sort of measurable effects on the quality of life of, of, of people and all these other things. But why are we supporting musicians? Why are we supporting music? Studies, how can we really defend it? What is valuable about this? And so that really was a great class. And Bernie Dabrowski, you know, continues to, I don't believe he's still teaching it out of check, but uh, he continues to be someone I'm in touch with probably every year or so. I touch base with him to, you know, let him know what I'm doing because I know he's interested and he always gives great advice. He's somebody who's advised me, you know, he recognized that I was, you know, a lot of academia is about hyper-specialization, you know, just get narrower and narrower and narrower in order to become a true specialist. And he was somebody who really encouraged generalists, like some... People who could learn things and could be really facile in a lot of different areas. And in a culture where oftentimes I wasn't being encouraged to get more and more narrow, he was somebody who really gave me permission to be continue to be general. And I love that about teaching non music majors. Now, you know, I teach a lot of different subject matters, mostly in 20th century music, but I go a little beyond that as well. I stay really broad and I have broad interests. And I think that's what makes me intellectually curious and exciting to my students. And he's somebody who really, really encouraged that, that that was having a generalist mindset, even though it doesn't always get the highest rank at universities where they're looking for research and looking for increased focus is really important. Actually, that was echoed as well. I remember by the president of Tufts, Larry Backow, when I matriculated. Shout out Larry. Yeah. When I matriculated. At my after my, time, day, after my time? After my time. He was there from like two thousand one to twenty eleven, maybe. He was there the whole time I was, I was there. Missed you, Julie. <laughs> yeah, he was there the whole time <laughs> I was there. But um, I am
0: actually a jumbo. I'm a ninety six jumbo, and I was the arts editor of the um,
2: Tufts Daily. Oh my
0: god. What Which
2: made th- me think about writing. Did you do that? I did not write for the Tufts Daily. And I, looking back, especially because I was into music journalism, I don't know why I didn't get into it. I wish I wow. had. Those are- D- I was just Dave, making Dave shit Dave up Mitchell off the top of my head. Dave Mitchell
1: definitely needed help. Uh, you remember uh, Dave Mitchell, Emily? He, he he would get like Greg Katz to write for him when he got really desperate. And I think he would have done better.
2: I would have loved that. But I was also, I think, one of the reasons I think I wanted to stay around for the musicology degree is like there was a part of me that really wanted to. I was in orchestra, I was doing more of like musical practice things at that time. And I, yeah, I had thought about it a few times, but it just seemed like one, you know, a thing that I wasn't. It, it was, able was a lot of work.
0: On. It was daily. It was literally every day, five days a week, yeah. you had to get the daily out. <laughs>
2: And I had come out of i was had been in high school, I had been the editor of our literary magazine, and I was kind of from a couple years of being editor in chief of that I was like a little bit a little burned out from doing all that, so I think that that was probably part of it. but I always read the Tufts Daily and always followed it, but it's something yeah that would have i ended up in fact instead of doing that, my senior project was I started a blog on music reviews, and so I did that under an independent study with a music professor. And so, I would just go to concerts at Tufts and in Boston, basically limited to you know Tufts and Boston concerts and write music reviews. Unfortunately, that is I tried to find it years later, and Tufts was like, "We're sorry, we just didn't keep up all this yeah. um that was one thing I did sort of in the journalist front, but you know, back to Larry Backow, I remember matriculating at our matriculation ceremony for the graduate program is he said, "The biggest risk you run." Becoming a graduate student is becoming a more, uh, less interesting person, and I. That's why we don't have graduate degrees, Jimmy. Wow, like (laughs) that. We are very general. Really good advice. The biggest risk you run is becoming a less interesting person. Like, and that really stayed in my mind. And his point was. So if you're in a bowling league, like keep it up. If you like to paint, keep it up. Like do the thing that makes you happy. Keep on doing other things. Become friends with people in other departments. Don't just become more and more narrow. Don't just become the th- So what do you bowl these days, Emily?
1: You remember that place in Route 2 that had the bowling alley? The
2: Candlepin? Was it Candlepin? I
1: can't yeah. remember. Uh, I, I remember yeah. they had cheap beer.
2: Yes, it was a lot of fun there, but you had to have, like have a car to get there. So it was like always, you know, strategically mm-hmm. difficult to find your way. Oh, yeah, that's right. It that was a lot of fun. But, oh no know, not a bowler these days. At least. On bowling alleys in Chicago, a lot of really cool kind of retro bowling alleys. I'm
1: curious, you you mentioned that class where you kind of like, you know, with the academy, you got like into the depth of it and how it works. And that having the mix of students from different departments together, have you seen that work at other times too? Because I'm thinking about the class I teach now at the nutrition school, and it's the only course one of the few courses that I have six different departments that come together. And a lot of these students haven't met each other before, which Mm -hmm. cracks me up because it's like a 200 person school. So I'm like, how do you not know each other? But they suddenly are making these new relationships and creating, I think some really interesting ideas from scratch and businesses from scratch. How much is like, is it a different perspective that like creates this kind of ability to be open and like not have to be the best in food policy or the best in musicology because you have, I don't know, what do you think?
2: I think it was in our case, there was only two students matriculating per year in each of these content areas. So we were already a very small department, but then we found ourselves sort of siloed off into musicology, music cognition, music education for most of our academic courses. And this was one of the exceptions. So it was the time that I was actually with some of the co from my year who I wouldn't see normally, or I'd see them at colloquia and other sorts of department wide events. But to me, I mean, I had not somebody who's in music cognition, who was talking to me about a study they were doing about the brainwave responses of listening to classical versus popular music or something, you know, along those lines. And I would just be like, whoa, like you're looking at, music in a way that I have not considered. And it was just a fascinating way to be exposed to other inroads into the study of music. And so it was really that class. I've seen it, you know, I see it in my students now because I have all non-music majors. We don't have any music major at SASC, which I love because... Sometimes teaching music majors, they're already really set in what they like and they've got opinions on it. And maybe they're maybe they want to just be in the practice room <laughs> practicing the instrument anyway. And you have to prove to them why it's valuable to learn this history. But a non-music major will come in and just be often love music, but not really know anything about it. and Not really know the words mm-hmm. to describe music or, you know, I always tell my all my students are mostly visual artists. So they are sculptors and painters and architects and arts administrators. And they have all sorts of different you know, and textiles and fashion and just all different areas of specialty. So they all come together in my class and they have an incredible, they have an incredible visual sense and awareness of aesthetic that is so fun to see opened up into the world of sound and music. And as I, discuss with them, you know, we're a very visual culture. I mean, most of us learn as children, names for colors and the names for shapes and things like that. We don't really learn the words for sound and song and melody and harmony and rhythm and texture and timbre and how to describe why we like the music that we like.
0: Can you like mentor (laughs) us a little bit? Can you teach us a little something? Like some words that
1: we could be using? Because that almost sounded like you were flowing when you just did like tone like cadence or whatever. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, we're kind of getting into this. I'm getting a little rhythm.
2: The classes I'm going into next week, it's our second week of class. So I do my elements of music class where we really just break down all of the different terminology that we're often really aware of when we listen, but don't really have the words to describe. In fact, it's fascinating that students will sometimes describe sound with visual images like, oh, this sounds like bunnies hopping in a field. (laughs) And you're like, okay, what's going on in the rhythm to make that feel that way? Like, Because we are so visual and whether it's through music videos or film music or other ways that we've seen we've heard music set to motion.
0: We need to practice with the augmenters music. Can we do
2: that? Sure, we do sounds, that.
1: I don't think it sounds like bunnies hopping in a field. That made <laughs> I made think of Rihanna. I can probably find the music somewhere quickly.
2: So while you're, I can like kind of introduce some of the ideas while you're pulling helpful. So I start really by talking about these big categories of melody, harmony, and rhythm. And melody, of course, is, you know, the tune or the theme or something that is, you know, most memorable. It's the thing that people hum back, right? It's the thing that people usually remember about a tune. And so there are ways to describe it, whether it's ascending, going up in pitch, descending, going down in pitch, whether it has certain inflections or cadences in it, whether it. has repeated notes or notes that are in stepwise form, meaning they go up one note at a time or in leapwise form, meaning they skip Mm. large or small leaps. And thinking about even, and sometimes it helps with visual students, for them to just graph out the shape of a melody, to kind of hear where it rises and falls. Even being aware, you know, I point out to them that the elevator in our school has an ascending interval when it's going up and it has a descending interval when it's going down. That's just music is used all over the place to say, signal, things like that. So just recognizing pitch relationship and and the way that things move up and down and how we can then interpret that is the way that those, if it's a song, the way that the, the melody is set to words, you know, are there words that are at very high pitches or very low pitches. And what is the composer or artist doing to draw attention to them? So we have melody that's really organization of pitches that are moving horizontally in time, right? It's, you know, it's a temporal experience melody. That's as opposed to harmony, that in harmony, it's a moment in time and all of the different pitches that are happening in that moment. So we think about harmony in terms of whether it sounds sweetly together, consonants, or sounds harsh together, dissonance, that's relative. There's a long history of, of intervals that it, and chords that have been considered consonant or dissonant in various times or places. But I think that thinking about chords and intervals in terms of moving horizontally in melody and moving vertically in harmony is really helpful. So we're thinking about you know elapsation of time versus a moment in time. And then of course, rhythm being the organization of note values, which is the organization of time, According to those melodies and harmonies. So, all of those melodies and harmonies, in order to be deployed, have to be controlled within time.
1: Where does Captain Beefface fit <laughs> that, that musician.
2: Oh my gosh. You'll have to cue it up so I can.
1: Okay. I, I, can I, 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 just, <laughs> I was with an artist uh, having a drink last night talking about a mural, and he casually brought up Captain Beefface. And I was like, that is a phenomenal name I've never heard before. He was like, oh, you're such a noob for not knowing who Captain Beefface is. I, I'm going to try this, see if it plays. Tell me. Me if you can hear it
2: your intro has it opens with three like consonant chords right we have two repeated chords plus a following chord and that is the that's the hook that gets us into the into the i guess you could almost call it what you call it a jingle i mean it's not quite a jingle it's not long enough what do you call Just these their intro music um yeah, intro cut yeah intro music okay so your intro is three chords you have they're all very constant. They're sweet sounding, but they resolve, right? One, the two chords that we hear repeated are setting up for the uh, the third chord. Then there's this almost twinkling quality. Kind of like Jimmy. Melody <laughs> that comes in over it. Very yes. twinkling, very <laughs> affable, very fun. It's kind of like...
1: And get sleepy early.
2: Exactly, <laughs> it's like you know, get <laughs> sleepy early. Yes, that's for sure. It's twinkling descending melody that's mostly moving stepwise descending, and then it launches right into. I don't believe there's any more after that descending part. And I'm just going to listen to it again. You have in between those three chords. You also have a few like isolated pitches going on in the background there, and then you have that burnout. Right, that little tiny like punctuation—it almost like has a percussive quality to it before we launch into the descending twinkling portion. So yeah, it's a great example of just seeing it. It really because it's such a brief phrase, and I think phrasing is really helpful to think about music. Like phrases are like in sentences; phrases are units of music that we kind of hear together. So this is like a, a musical phrase that is sort of has three sections: those three chords, then that little nano that little punctuation there and then the twinkling descending melody that comes in at the end. But of course it has like, you know, in terms of its overall timbre and timbre is one of my favorite terms that really refers to the quality of sound. It's the reason that when I sing a B flat, it sounds different from mm. when Jimmy sings one or when Julie sings one or oboe plays one or a piano plays one, each of them have a different vibration and resonance to them that is beyond pitch. It is not, the pitch may be the same, but the sound of it is very different. And timbre is a really fun word for my students, because when you're describing timbre, you usually don't need very technical terminology. It relies more on description terminology you can describe timbre as being bright or muted or brassy or nasally or
1: how much do you steal from the wine industry descriptions when you do this Ooh
2: yeah oh my gosh that would be a fantastic project to match so, it, it up to write sort of uh the bottle descriptions for particular songs i like them. i
1: always thought like the first time i should do mushrooms is when i need to name some paint colors <laughs> and like this is what i want to get after we should definitely
0: record that and we should do a podcast then.
2: I used to love naming colors when I was younger. I loved that. Like as a kid, I was always naming colors, thought I should be one of those Crayola crayon. <laughs>
1: I mean, you might've given me that idea, Emily. Now that I'm thinking about it, I feel like you might've just like casually said that like back in the day. And I was just like, that sounds like fun. And he co-opted it
0: as his own. That sounds like something. Oh my God. Okay. Emily, I have another question for you Ask- though, because we want to stick on, you know, we want to hear just a little bit more related to mentoring and thank you for mentoring us on all of these topics i feel like we could get a phd It would take us a very long time and i have terrible taste in music like almost the worst so um <laughs> i'm not like the augmenters intro <laughs> i just
1: listened to it on repeat speaking of her terrible taste in music I thought she said Chris LeDoux, the country <laughs> music artist. And Julie was referencing Husker Du, which. <laughs> very, did you say very different? That was hilarious. And, I literally,
0: uh, the first time Jimmy and I met, I said something about being in, going to Texas. And he said, oh yeah, like Dallas nights, Dallas days and Fort Worth nights or something like that. By, by Chris LeDoux, and I thought he said Husker Du. And then I actually went home and I was like, I don't think they had a song. Like I remember them from back in the day. Anyways, but I would love to hear more from you, Emily our mission at Augmenters is helping people connect more authentically with others and growing to their potential. And so you spend a lot of your time on the latter half of that, I'm sure you help them connect more authentically with themselves and with music. But how do you help your
2: students grow to their potential? Like what are some of, do you have like key phrases that you go back to? In my position, being part of the liberal arts department, my job is to make sure that they are getting outside of their studio classes, the sort of academic basis um, for an education that is required in a bachelor of arts degree. And a lot of that is in writing. And I've had some really amazing writing mentorships working at the graduate writing center at Northwestern, tutoring other PhDs in their writing. And I take a lot of that into the classroom. And one of the things that I think is really important is helping the students recognize and appreciate the value of their contributions, even though they're not specialists, even though they might be hearing something for the first time or using this language for the first time, and that they're listening and their response to it is valuable. And so in that, even though, of course, we have sort of formal page requirements of how much writing and, you know, research papers that they have to be doing. I try to de-emphasize the final product, the final term paper, and emphasize the process of getting there. And I think that that is a way that, really helps them to value what they're using to not resort to plagiarism or chat GPT, um, which of course we're facing right now, a new new, uh, wrinkle to um, teaching uh, writing. What that means is that, for example, in a first year writing seminar that I have, that it's writing about music, right? A really general topic. We don't get as much into, we really, it's not as much about music literacy as my upper level classes are, but it's really focused on writing. And so rather than really overemphasizing this final draft or the final paper and everything I'll have four drafts that are equally weighted that are all different stages in getting to that final 10-page paper. And I really encourage them to be very messy in the Mm. first three drafts. And this is challenging to some of them because they expect, you know, they've got to pass in something polished for everything. And that emphasis on being too polished, I think, really wrecks a student's ability to show their process and to show how they're getting to their ideas. So I'll say, you know, okay, for this first draft, you're really just just you know talking about your early questions the the things you want to find out in your term paper and they have open they have free reign to talk about anything that relates to the class that they're interested in you can include a combination of outlining and bullet points and some full paragraphs and you can have incomplete sentences and you can have things highlighted in red and you can have any sort of number of raw material bits whatever helps you get to that place of however you naturally kind of perform the process of writing a paper that's what I to. To see. That's what you're passing in. And that's, what you're going to get graded on. Oftentimes I get repeat questions. Like, are you sure? Like, you know, and I'm like, yes, I really want to see the mess. I want to see all the mess.
1: Emily, is that one of the Ways where you, you told me in one of our earlier chats that the uh, students always teach you something. Is it in those really kind of like rough drafts where you're you actually learn you know more than
2: maybe the finished draft? Absolutely, and they're all makers, right? They they're in school to make things. They're creative people. I see their process. I see uh, sometimes it's fascinating to see what they do with color coding and you know and how they might excerpt a bunch of quotes that they haven't really quite understood. They really haven't figured out how to use these quotes yet, but they like the quotes so they're going to write around them something I do as well in my work sometimes and to just see it as a mess and as raw material what it also helps me do is give them feedback that's much more catered to their individual process because I'll write feedback well I have different types of feedback for the various stages you know I'll have feedback for one draft that is a individual meeting where we talk about the draft I'll have feedback for another draft that's written where I have like a lot of just personalized comments about them about the paper that's written out but they're also in order to make my job easier. I have a big template of a lot of different issues that I see come up in writing that I then kind of take little fragments from my top comments and apply them to because I've got ways of talking about structure and paragraphs and quoting and things like that, that I really like the way I've written it before. So I'll take that little bit from my sort of master template of comments and then apply it to their paper showing them an example of where it works or doesn't work. So that and then I have a final and then we have one draft where they just have peer feedback. And at that point they've gotten feedback from me in multiple ways and they start to give each other feedback and That's a fantastic thing to witness. We do it in class. class. I
1: I, I want to totally flip it, Emily, for a minute and talk about, you know, with all the music history and your focus, can you tell me a little bit how musicians in your focus time period, how they helped each other or how others kind of supported them in like a different time and place? And like, just talk about that period of focus you have, just like describing your own words.
2: That's a huge thing, but I will connect it actually to another area of leadership that I've recently been engaged in and is also a focus of my scholarship as well. There's a Chicago club that's been around since 1875 called the Musicians Club of Women, and I joined this club back in 2018 2017 maybe yeah 2017 and found out about it from a colleague at SAIC who was a poetry professor who said you've got to come to my club one day this is you know you'd love this and it's a club that basically was founded on at a time when women have fewer professional opportunities for music making like encouraging women's development in music in performance in composition even more recently in conducting which is very important and helping supporting them through various scholarship opportunities and other things it's been around for almost 150 years. And I'm the club's historian, and I've just been working on an article on women's musical clubs from 1875 to 1925 in the United States that is coming out in Cambridge University Press in a couple of years. It takes that <laughs> long, always in academia. But that focuses on especially the Chicago World's Fair of 1893, when the second president of our club basically held a convention of women's musical club leaders from around the country to convene and think about, you know, what the future of music making looks like for women and how, how to engage and support each other in not only performing for players, pleasure but performing to advance each other professionally and to encourage, you know, the arts in the broader community. But what has been really interesting is once I got into the club, I pretty soon joined the board of directors, we're a nonprofit, all volunteer board and in February of 2020, they asked me to become president of the club. Wow. And I said, yes. And President and um, professor, it's a lot of yeah, P's. Yeah, president and professor, that's right. And I said, yes, but of course that was February, 2020. So I did not expect to be navigating this club, this 146 year old club through the pandemic, which was certainly a challenge um, and definitely put to the test so many of the leadership lessons that I had learned. Because here I was trying to reinvent, you know what does a club do when our mission is to support Promote and engage women in music. What is it doing when musicians are out of work and they don't have these opportunities? How do our awards scholarships go on? We were giving out you know fifty to sixty thousand dollars worth of endowed awards. Annually, And how do we keep this up and continue to bring in talent, young talent to support in their musical studies? What is my board of directors look like in the face of this, um, in the face of this pandemic, where so many don't have time for this kind of volunteer work? It's a lot different to lead people who are volunteering than to Mm. lead people who are being paid. And so leading volunteers and making sure that you emphasizing the mission and the and the rewarding aspects of that service, as opposed to the task. And the minutia, and you know, demonstrating that gratitude to all of them, you know, it really challenged me to to keep that club, you know, up and running, and to reinvent it in the face of not having our standard concerts and series and all the things that were sort of running pretty well and were doing great. And we were lose, but we were losing members, you know, at the start of the pandemic, and it was just a lot. It was a lot, and it was always a very strange feeling to be simultaneously running the club and making sure that it survived this incredible, you know, change, especially, you know, for musicians who were not performing and didn't have, didn't have the income, you know, really, we came up with new grants programs, we did a lot of different things to try to reinvent what the club meant in terms of supporting women in music for these years. And so I served from 2020 from June 2020 to May 2022, we're limited to one term, and I did my two year term, that's a (laughs) lifetime. So I'm done with my one See, with the Musicians Club of Women, 72nd president, but now I'm I'm still on the board, but I've you know I'm transitioning to full historian, um, and that job is a combination of preserving our history actively, you know, after board meetings, collecting materials and other things, programs that we have for our concerts, and then also recounting our history. We're coming up on our 150th anniversary in 2025, and I'm pitching the idea right now and getting the support from the board to write a monograph on our 150th anniversary. We we had a monograph written on our 100th anniversary by a former president and historian that was in 1975. So I think it's time for, you know, and it seems with my background as a musicologist and my experience being president.
0: They are so lucky to have you. That's incredible. That's incredible. And what bravery to like, I, I think. You know, a lot of mentoring and showing up in life are these evolutions, right? Things happen and you don't know what to expect and you just kind of put one foot in front of another and you, you know, make it up. I have to say, you are incredibly impressive. I was just doing the math knowing that you're younger than Jimmy, but I am very, very impressed. And I'm sure your entire field is really grateful to have you as bringing, you know, this fresh energy, you know, thinking of the professors that you talked about at Tufts and, you know, imagining I took the jazz history of jazz class at Tufts. There's a professor there. I think he was pretty close to retiring when I was there, but how passionate he was. Did you know who it
2: is? Was that Michael Ullman or Joel? R- Michael. He was on my thesis committee at Tufts because he was also a, a Henry James specialist. And I wrote my master's thesis on the governess in Benjamin Britton and Henry James' The Turn of the Screw. I think I barely passed,
0: but it was a really fun class, but it was a very hard class.
2: <laughs> much harder
0: than you would have thought for jazz. I would have thought it would have been much easier, but...
2: Joel LaRue-Smith was also an incredible. He took—he was a jazz theory professor. One of my... Really opened me up to the theory of jazz in a way that has foundationally changed the way I teach and understand music. So a lot of great professors. It's great to hear I, you worked with Michael Well, I'm I didn't a...
1: work with him. I just <laughs> held on. <laughs> Hold on and dreamed of going back and just listening to Husker do. Emily, I got a a couple questions I ask all the guests. I like, this is just a rapid fire association. I'm curious, you know, what comes to mind. It's just like one word. So I'm going to say a word and you just, whatever comes to mind, whether it's, you know, ketchup or, you know, bunnies in a field. So when I say the word mentor, what do you think of? Collaboration. And when I say the word mentee, what do you think of? inspiration
2: okay how about sponsor patronage and how about coach connection it's more of an intimacy thing i guess like you know just a one-on-one thing when i think about coaching but connection i guess Gotcha.
1: that's awesome and you, you mentioned that you the students use a lot of quotes in some of their writing. And you had such a great quote from Larry Bacow. What's one quote that comes to mind most recently that you've read about one of uh, the different musicians you, you study?
2: Oh, well, I don't know. This is the first one that comes to mind. Yes. I'm just going to go with the rapid one. But Ornette Coleman, amazing free jazz. Yes, I got him in my class. Yes. And maybe that's why it's just in my head right now. He said, and I talk about this when I'm talking about you know, in jazz, bending the pitch, you know, not playing exactly in tune and things like that. And and the points of expression that come out of that. And he said, you can play sharp in tune. You can play flat in tune. You just can't play out of tune. And I was like that because it it makes me think of musically, you know, how much expression there is in just subtle variation away from, you know, a system of tonality. And in terms of creativity, it makes me think about the same sort of act of erring away a little bit from something that, you know, being a little bit out of tune in something that you're working on or going a little bit outside the lines. But if you do it in a certain way, it actually is exactly the pitch that you need.
1: Love it. That almost sounds like mentoring right there. Exactly. As long as you don't not mentor, you can show up in a way for somebody else.
2: Exactly.
0: Mentoring with Orta Coleman amazing. Emily, it was so great to spend this time with you. Thank you so much for your energy and your time. You definitely, I learned a lot of things I didn't know about a little bit about Jimmy in college, but I kind of already knew that. And then <laughs> a lot about music and yeah, the different ways to think of it. I'm definitely going to use some of those sort of markers along the way as I'm listening to something other than Who's Could Do. I haven't listened to in a long time, but was a great early alternative band from Minneapolis. And thank you, Emily. This was so much fun.
1: It was such a treat to be able to spend some time with my, my old friend, Emily Hoyler O'Hare.
0: I really liked her a lot. I could see how you guys had a good time together in college. And I am jealous that you all got to go bowling together because I did not know anybody with a car. Therefore, I did not get off campus for bowling.
1: And Emily was being way too nice when she described me as fun and affable. I was only one of those two, and she was definitely way, 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 way more fun. <laughs>
0: Well, you know, you're fun and you're fun in your own way.
1: (laughs) Emily was intimidating because she would come back like the next day or, you know, later that night and be like, oh, yeah, I was at this show, you know, like the Middle East down in like Central Square. I was like, oh, my God, this person is just so cool. I don't even know where that location is. I grew up around here and she's going to like underground shows and then writing about people want to want her opinion. I was like, ooh. Yeah,
0: that is impressive. And the Middle East had the best falafel in all of Boston. And that was Tia's. It's a great spot.
1: It was an interesting mix. I can yeah, tell you good co- stories. Go to Tia's on the waterfront. Yeah, the whole thing.
0: But I have to say the one thing I got from her, the story I will probably always remember is sitting on the couch with her professor and her professor basically saying to her, I know you've committed to this giant program. It probably took like huge hoops and obstacles to get there. And mm-hmm. it's actually going to be really hard. And it's kind of going to suck. And for her, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but I think for her to be like, cool, I'm doing it anyways. And coming back a couple of years later and being like, and here's how I actually like crushed it. Or here's how I am crushing it and how I continue to crush it. So I think that goes back to that resilience. And sometimes mentors are going to be like, look, this is really tough. Like you're going to go through something really hard, but to be able to come back and say, I did it. Take that. It was
1: amazing to me. I feel like Emily showed us this lens of mentors help refine your goals and dreams to make sure you know you want them. So they're looking around corners for you, such as the quote from the ex president of Tufts University. Shout out Larry Bacow, now president of Harvard. Ooh, yeah. You know, I don't know if that means he went up or down the hill, but for Larry, his quote to folks that were matriculating was, "If you stay in academia." your biggest risk you run is becoming a less interesting person. And I mean, talk about uh, hey, I'm just giving you a heads up, watch out, this is an alligator lurking that you don't know. And that's a huge, invaluable resource because you haven't been there, so how would you know you're gonna become less interesting?
0: Jimmy, can I ask you, has there been a time where somebody has given you advice and told you, yeah, I don't know if it's gonna work, Or like, this is what's going to be super hard and you were able to come back later and tell them why they were right or wrong and you crushed it.
1: I feel like Emily did that for us when she listened to our music outro and said, well, it's not quite a jingle. Like, ah, (laughs) I want it to be a jingle so bad. So
0: does that mean that we're going to go make it a better jingle and bring it back to her?
1: I think we have to. We'll get back, uh, you know, in the Booga basement and see what we can work up. Yeah.
0: I'm taking that as a personal challenge.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think quite often, I actually remember really clearly this, and this is from my best friend, John, who uh, we had not had on the pod, but I was in a bar, DC Chop House, in Gallery Place in Washington, DC, and we were going through one of our many tough trials of the chickpea business. And I remember him looking me in the eye, just being like, just shut it down. You got other things to do. You know it's not going to work. And he rarely says things seriously to me. And I remember that. And I was just like, okay, fuck you. I think I finished my beer. You drop a 20 on the bar and like walked out or something. Not, It wasn't that dramatic. I like to think it was. And, and he wasn't necessarily wrong, but he really kind of helped show me, yeah, you, you can't always be dreaming at that moment. And he's not usually a mentor to me, but he was definitely a mentor in that moment.
0: Yeah, that's a great story. I love the vividness of you throwing down the 20, (laughs) walking out the door. I could totally see that being dramatic, but yeah, it's so true. And sometimes it is that moment of like, oh, you think I have to shut it down? Like, screw you. I'm going to grow it, you know, 10 times as much. Or sometimes it's it's like, actually, you're kind of right. You're kind of right. But I appreciated how Emily kind of took it in and was like, yeah, okay, I get it. There are parts that are going to be hard, but I'm going to be here and be able to make it work for me, which she obviously has done. And I honestly, in the middle of the interview thought, my God, is this woman like 37 years old. She is incredible. And I think the music field Here's is going. incredibly lucky to have her. She already seems to have the wisdom and expertise and knowledge of somebody such as my jazz professor, who is not on the young side. So the the music field is really, really lucky to have her. And we were lucky to have her on as well.
1: Yeah, it was fantastic. And I got to figure out what color corresponds to the name bunnies hopping in a field. That's going to take me a while. I don't think I have any hallucinogenics around, but maybe in 10 or 20 years. I'll figure it out. I will be waiting
0: here, ready to hear what you come up with.
1: It's probably high contrast, right? It's got to be.
0: Whatever you say. Yes.
1: Ogbenters, Sunday morning.
0: We're out. We hope this episode was brief yet bright. And now it's time to read us out. And remember, we are here because real relationships have the power to transform organizations and build dynamic communities.
1: Absolutely. Augmenters supports mentoring that matters. Visit our website for the best interactive mentoring content at augmentors.us. Share our podcast with someone you care about, someone who needs a new mentoring relationship in their life pronto. We welcome questions and suggestions via email, hi at augmenters.us, or via social media with our handle, at augmentershq. Shout out to our producers, Erlin Cato. Thank you. Augmenters out. See ya.